In this third episode of our Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on Wednesday, the 22nd of February, 2022, Senior Fellows Jamie Shea and Paul Taylor are joined by guest speaker, Colonel Michael Ryan, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy at the United States Department of Defense. Russian tanks rolled into the Ukrainian provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk to the east of the country on Monday night. On Tuesday evening, Russian President Vladimir Putin asked the upper house of his parliament to approve the use of force outside Russian territory. Is this the beginning of a full-scale invasion? What will stop Putin now? Are the sanctions likely to have an impact? Let's kick off with this first question um, to you, Mike. Um, so at the emergency session of the UN Security Council, the US ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield said, President Putin is testing our international system and seeing how far he can push us all. So how far do you think he is able to push now? Well, thank you, Tracy, for the question. He's been pushing the international system for quite some time according to what many consider a deliberate strategy based on his ambitions to resurrect in some way, shape or form the Russian empire, call it the Soviet Union, call it the Russian empire, whatever. Uh, what we're seeing now, we've seen before, and that was in Georgia in 2008 and what they did in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They've already been in Ukraine since 2014. And so he's been pushing and testing all along. This test happens to have gotten everybody's attention in a way it hasn't happened before. But as of yet, we've not seen too much new in the way of international reaction. And all of what we've seen, I think, the Russians should have, and Putin certainly did have, uh, in, under consideration during the planning for whatever it is they intend to do further. So this latest escalation, and recall that the Russians use an escalate to de-escalate strategy, and so far... Uh, due to their escalation, Europe hasn't splintered in the transatlantic uh, relationship hasn't broken. And President Biden and other leaders have stood up to the test. So is this a continued escalation in the hopes that uh, perhaps Putin could split off one of the herd and break consensus in the alliance? Or is it part of a preconceived uh, notion to bring Ukraine back into the Russian fold? Indeed, he was quite revengeful in his speech on Monday, claiming that uh, Ukraine was not even a nation and it belonged to Russia. So should we fear now that he's out to conquer the whole of the Ukraine? Um, you know, should we worry that he will attack Kiev uh, from the north on the ground or fear an air campaign with shock and awe effect uh, aiming at uh, regime change? What, what are his next military moves, in your opinion? Well, yes, we should definitely worry about all of that and we should be prepared for all of that and we should signal as soon as possible as strongly as possible that that course of action is unacceptable uh, but when you go back to his speech and you remember that he lives in an echo chamber now he's mis dismissed all of his moderate advisors and he's not fully engaged in the governance of the russian federation so he's living in his own mind and hearing things that he expects to hear from people who are beholden to him so Going back to this Russian long-held strategy of escalate to de-escalate, I'm sure he was told, I'm not sure, but I would imagine he was told uh, that consensus in the alliance would break, that the Germans or the French or the Americans or somebody uh, would give him an opening that he could take advantage of to get 
more of what he wants without resorting to military force. So he was definitely angry in his speech. Was he, was he angry that what he was told would happen didn't happen and therefore he had to go to this next step? Or has he got the gambler syndrome, which just means I've, I'm risking a lot, but I'm going to get the big payoff if I just roll one more bet. And so if he is going to roll one more bet, and if he is absolutely committed to eliminating Ukraine from the Western fold, then, then he will go because he's at the height of Russian military power. The Ukrainian army is only going to get stronger. The Ukrainian economy is only going to get more integrated into Europe, into the West. And the Ukrainian body politics is only going to get more resilient. So this is his best possible moment. If indeed his long-held aspiration is to own Ukraine. Uh, I would imagine uh, that he's going to want to try to win the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people. The justification is that the Ukrainians are just little Russians. They're part of who we are. They're part of the family. So how can you go in and kill part of the family to save them? So I would imagine a strong position of his forces in and around Kiev uh, and then across the south uh, through Mariupol towards Odessa, just to be able to hold hostage the Ukrainian government as he works to replace that government with those more friendly to Russia so that then he can retreat back into the Russian Federation with a strong pro-Russian government in place in Kiev. So minimum destruction, but maximum show of force, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you touched on the international response. Um, I mean, let's let's focus a bit more on that. Um, are the new sanctions that were announced by US and, and EU, um, including the suspension of Germany's approval of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, is that enough or is it too little too late? Well, it's certainly too late. And the later it happens, the, the more little it is, if I can turn a phrase. A lot of people have said, including myself and President Zelensky, that given Russian posturing with up to 75% of its conventional force around the borders of Ukraine, uh, these hard-hitting sanctions should have been enacted before he took more resolute action as he did in Donetsk and Luhansk. That begs the question. He saw what was on offer. He talked to President Biden several times. He talked to President Macron, to Chancellor Schultz, and he knew what was coming, and yet he still moved forward. So is it him or is it the people who are around him and support him and do they still have the wherewithal to influence him? I mean, that's a key question when it comes to are the sanctions good enough? Because if his mind is made up and this is his best possible moment and it's his long held aspiration and he firmly believes that the security of the Russian nation is at stake, then I don't think they're enough. What, what more could uh, the EU, US and NATO do to prevent him from launching a full-scale attack? I mean, do we need to beef up aid to Ukraine, send reinforcements to you know, the East? Um, what, what more can be done? Perhaps all three of you can come in here, but Mike, uh, if you want to kick off. Right, I noted that Paul wants to come in. So if I could defer to him, which will give me time to think about your very good question, Tracy. Uh, let's hear what Paul has to say. Yeah, I think Tracy, I mean, First of all, as Mike pointed out, uh, uh, Putin has acted despite uh, uh, whatever he ex anticipated in terms of sanctions after intensive talks uh, uh, on the phone with uh, Presidents Biden, uh, Macron, Schultz, uh, uh, Macron, Schultz in person. So uh, I don't think he can be, uh, he may have been surprised, however, that Germany went moved so quickly uh, to suspend uh, um, Nord Stream 2. And I think that was the big surprise uh, in the initial round of sanctions. Um, uh, Germany surprised on the upside, if you like, 
uh, I would argue that the UK, which has had the biggest mouth throughout this, uh, turned out to have the smallest trousers and surprised on the downside, although we're told there are more UK sanctions coming. <clears throat> Each country, of course, has its own procedures and it has to be legally watertight because we have the rule of law in our countries. And so uh, it was inherently difficult for uh, European countries and perhaps also for the United States, although the United States is, is rather more used to taking sanctions. Uh, um, but uh, it was inherently difficult for Europeans to, to adopt sanctions while you, uh, Russian forces were only massed on Russian territory. You know, countries have the right to mass forces on their territory. We can do it on our territory. Um, and they've got to be able to stand up these sanctions in the European Court of Justice if they get there or in their own high courts. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that the Nord Stream 2 uh, move will end up in court at some stage. So we've got to have watertight arguments. And uh, therefore, that left, if you like, the first move to President Putin. But I think that having seen the unity that he saw yesterday uh, and, and knowing that there are more sanctions on the way and that the ultimate uh, sanction is uh, going to be to try and cut Russia uh, uh, financially out of international transactions in one way or another, uh, with the first steps having been taken yesterday. I'm not sure that will change Putin's mind, but I'm not sure that we are able to change Putin's mind um, short of changing the calculus about force. And we, we know very well that neither the United States nor European countries are willing uh, to go to war with Russia in and over Ukraine. So that is a constraint. And we're, we're willing to arm Ukraine. We're willing to support Ukraine. Uh, we're willing to do lots of things. We're willing to move troops so as to defend NATO members um, in the east. But we're, uh, since we're not willing to fight him over Ukraine, uh, with armed force, then sanctions are broadly what's left. Mike, Jamie? Jamie? Yeah, uh, the, the problem with sanctions, of course, is that they, they take time, as Paul said rightly, they take time to bite. Secondly, you know, the Russians have known for many months, if not years, uh, that they were likely to get themselves into this situation. And so they have taken sort of precautionary measures. They've tried to shift their trade from dollars to euros. For example, the recent deal on energy that they cut with China was in euros, uh, so that they're not so dependent on the dollar uh, economy, uh, where they would expect the strongest sanctions, of course, to come from the United States. They've amassed apparently some uh, enormous sovereign wealth fund of uh, about $650 billion. Uh, they have cut their need for Western financial help uh, by reducing their deficits. Uh, you know, they've, they've taken a lot of steps to make themselves in the short term, at least, uh, uh, less vulnerable. They're clearly help, hoping too that, you know, trade with China, technology, gas sales might compensate for what they're likely to face in terms of uh, uh, sanctions. So sanctions, unfortunately, do sort of take time to bite over the long run. Uh, so we, as Paul rightly said, we can't expect them to work as a massive immediate deterrent. On the other hand, I think, uh, and Paul pointed this out rightly, unity is what matters, even more than the actual sort of 
nature of the immediate package of sanctions. Uh, the fact that you know, Germany was the first up, <laughs> which would have surprised a lot of people, but you know, Canada, the UK, I, I know what Paul said about the UK, but everybody kicked in. And, and, and Japan, Australia, as they did over Crimea in 2014, uh, also joined the, the sanctions package. I noted too that the, the reaction of China uh, was very muted and people might have expected more robust support uh, for Russia by China after Putin's visit to Beijing, but but the Chinese were were, were quite cautious and didn't refer to Russia uh, at all. So isolating Russia, I think, is key. I think the, the, the next key thing is to convince Russia uh, that there are far more significant things to come uh, if they carry on uh, attacking uh, Ukraine. Uh, the real issue, though, is are we willing to sort of take pain ourselves? Uh, uh, you know, this has always been the issue with sanctions. You want to inflict pain on somebody else uh, for aggressive behavior, but you want to minimize the consequences for your own consumers when you think of gas prices. And it was interesting yesterday that Dmitry Medvedev, who used to be Russian president, Putin loyalist, was saying, you know, we're going to hit you with 2,000 euros uh, per, you know, 1,000 cubic meters of gas. That's really going to hurt you. Uh, and pointing that out that Russia could take counter sanctions against the West by denying uh, key rare earth raw materials or, of course, the gas uh, uh, weapon. The EU and the US so far have said, yes, you know, we think that this is so egregious. We are now, for the first time, willing to inflict sanctions, which also cause us economic uh, uh, damage. Uh, but I think over the uh, weeks to come, that's going to be the key test. But in terms of the immediate future, so yes, indeed, if Putin wants to uh, move on the rest of Ukraine, the threat of sanctions, which the Russians have cashed in, is not likely to uh, uh, deter him. And therefore, that puts the onus back on issues like making sure that NATO is secure and that the conflict doesn't spill over onto NATO territory, and the question of to what extent should we still step up the arming of Ukraine, uh, the weapons supplies, uh, increase that. Uh, Putin could use it as a casus belli, but uh, there are no easy choices in this field, uh, but it could help the Ukrainians to put up uh, an effective resistance. You know, if they could sort of you know, poke Russia in the eye early on in a Russian invasion, it, it might persuade Putin that uh, to carry on isn't really worth the candle. Mike, is there anything you'd like to add there? Oh, certainly. And uh, both these gentlemen know me and they know that I'll have something to say. Uh, first, I take issue with Paul's uh, legality interpretation. The Russians have been in Ukraine illegally since 2014 and Russian forces have been in Donetsk and Luhansk since then. Uh, the shoot down of the Malaysian airliner, there's plenty of legal justification to impose stricter sanctions. Uh, and it's been evident and it's been in the public space. When you get to the question of what is it we should be doing, we're trying to stop a negative. That's what the whole conversation is about. Instead of trying to prove a positive, what is it we, the West, want when we say self-determination of peoples, inviability of sovereign borders? Because, again, the Russians have been in Crimea and in, in eastern Ukraine since 2014. They've been in Georgia since 2008 and occupying the sovereign Georgian territory. So how do we determine what it is we want do we want Ukraine restored to its whole fulsome self pre-Russian 2014 action? We want Georgia restored to its pre-wholesome self before 2008. Uh, what is it we want and then how do we achieve that uh, short of the use of military forces, Jamie pointed out, and I completely agree with Jamie Paul on this. I would think two things we need to do. One, and I've said this all along, we need to give the Ukrainians the wherewithal to cause as, much, as many Russian casualties as possible through the... Uh, provision of Javelin, of Stinger, and we've been doing that quite extensively, as have others. And so 
that gets right at Putin's Achilles heel, Achilles heel, which is Russian mothers. I mean, there's been coffins going back from Eastern Ukraine since 2014, and it's really caused him some domestic uh, problems there. And the more coffins that come back, the more the Russian people are going to start to question, is this justifiable? Why are we fighting our Ukrainian brothers? Why are our sons dying over Ukraine when there's no need to do that? But on the positive side, a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, they had the association agreement with the European Union, to start to then build a Ukrainian economy and a Ukrainian way of life that then becomes the envy of the Russian people is really another one of Putin's uh, weak spots because the more Russians see the viability of Ukraine, especially as their quality of life continues to go down, uh, the more Putin is going to be vulnerable. So once Putin becomes vulnerable, then we can get at a conversation with a more reasonable Russian government as to how we, the West, how we, the international community, really accommodate valid Russian security concerns and help them get over the invalid Russian security concerns. So really the viability of Ukraine, the desire of people in the East to be part of Ukraine, and that's something we can do with economic tools, with financial tools, with the rule of law, with justice and other things that the EU and the international community are so good at, and really make the counter case to separatists in both Georgia and Ukraine that there's a better way of life to be had. And we just look at the Russian minorities in the Baltics that have EU passports. They're not interested in being tools of uh, President Putin. Uh, they're fully bought into the European way of life. Thank you. So is there room left for diplomacy still? Well, there's always room left for diplomacy because as Clausewitz once said, war is a continuation of politics by other means. And what we forget when he says that is that therefore, Politics is the continuation of war by other means, because all nations act in their own self-interest all the time without exception. Those interests are defined by the head of state and government, in this case for Russia, President Putin. And so he's using levers and using leverage to achieve his interests. He laid out his maximum position for Russia's interests in the, the, the draft treaties that he sent to NATO and to the United States. Uh, clearly, those are unacceptable, but everything is a negotiation. So if we think maximum Russian military effort in Ukraine, there are always diplomatic off-ramps to forestall the maximum effort as he takes incremental steps to escalate the situation, to drive this point home and to try to gain as much as he can with as little effort on his part as possible. Paul, is there anything you want to add on the discussion? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Mike that there, 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 may be, uh, there may be other windows for diplomacy. I don't think at the moment, this is, I mean, we've seen meetings canceled this week between Blinken and Lavrov, between uh, Le Drian and Lavrov. Uh, Western uh, leaders so far are not catching much flack for having tried to talk Putin out of doing this. Um, and, but I think if there is a pause now, if we don't see Russian uh, troops uh, moving into, uh, moving beyond the, the, the self-proclaimed so-called republics of Luhansk and Donetsk into other parts uh, of Donbass, which are under uh, Ukrainian government administration, um, if there isn't more military action, then I think uh, after a while, there will be another window for diplomacy. And as Mike says, um, the diplomacy has to uh, explore what Putin uh, uh, really wants, and whether you know, we aside from his maximalist agenda, which is quite unacceptable, um, what Putin interestingly said during the uh, security his meet, national security council meeting, which was 
uh, reported by Russian media was that Biden had offered him a moratorium on Ukrainian membership of NATO, but that was insufficient because it was just a ruse and they would go on preparing Ukraine to join and so on. Um, but that's interesting, if correct, if true, uh, because that's that was pretty much my guess as to how this uh, uh, situation might get resolved peacefully, uh, if indeed that were possible. Um, so far, um, we've had some skirmishes, but we haven't had actual uh, uh, fighting. And so there's still, I think, even at this late stage, a chance for a pause that could open a window for diplomacy. But um, Putin has already uh, re rejected what seems to likely to have been close to the maximum price we were willing to pay. Uh, Mike, you, you want, want to comment on that? Yeah, I just wanted to add the Chinese angle to this. I thought it was quite uh, telling that the Chinese foreign minister at the Munich Security Conference reiterated the inviability of national borders, keeping in mind that they said Taiwan has always been a part of China. And he specifically called out Ukraine. So we, when we look at the Russian-Chinese partnership in this, and the Chinese long-held ambition to maneuver the international community into accepting Taiwan as part of China. One wonders if that has any influence on President Putin whatsoever, given that China is backstopping them against Western sanctions. And they specifically said Ukraine, so in the sovereign territory of Ukraine. So this ruse of Luhansk and Donetsk declaring their independence and being recognized by the Duma Again, that's the same playbook as Georgia, and we let that slide. It doesn't really violate the Chinese red lines, but if he should carry on and launch an invasion out of Donetsk and Luhansk and down out of Belarus, then that crosses a big Chinese red line that they put out on the world's premier security conference stage. And what is that gonna do to China face saving with respect to their relationship with uh, Russia. And as far as I know, China has not never recognized uh, Crimea's uh, integration, incorporation into the Russian Federation. That's uh, eight years after it happened. Precisely. Because the Chinese have bigger fish to fry. And when I talk to my friends from South Asia, they don't even think about Russia anymore. It's all, all China all the time. Jamie. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, I, I think you know, diplomacy, yes, I mean, diplomats always have to talk to each other. And as we all know, it's more important sometimes to talk to your enemies or your adversaries and your friends. But I, I think there are going to be sort of key differences after this, because I think that even though Mike rightly pointed out, this is not the first sort of egregious example of Russian behavior. They've done it before in Georgia, Moldova. Uh, this is the third time in Ukraine. I, I think this time, you know, the, the, the West has sort of sensed that a, a bigger red line has been crossed. Putin's uh, demands to change the entire security order, his demand now that Ukraine be neutral, that it be totally demilitarized, which means that even if it preserves its statehood. It's destined to become a Russian sort of satellite state. Uh, it certainly won't be a Western democratic country for long under those conditions. And um, and the way in which, you know, clearly uh, Russia is now increasingly portraying NATO as the enemy, as the aggressor. So we're in a new world now. It's not just, you know, business as usual. Uh, and I don't think, you know, the dust is going to settle back to talk of partnership with Russia uh, once uh, uh, the crisis at least uh, has passed for now. 
I think there are going to be significant differences. I think the focus will be much more on how do we contain Russia, contain Putin's ambitions, how do we reduce our vulnerabilities to Russia, the gas issue with I think there will be changes there. Uh, NATO will inevitably have to significantly reinforce its eastern flank. Uh, this is happening already and go towards permanent deployments rather than simply rotational uh, uh, deployments. We see that Russia has been making uh, life difficult for us in terms of counterterrorism in places like Africa or Mali, the Middle East, just like the Soviet Union did in Africa or the Middle East during the days of the Cold War. Uh, we see the Russia-China rapprochement, although as Mike says, it's sometimes more complicated than it looks. So we're going to have to at least develop a much more forthright strategy of how we protect ourselves from a, a negative Russian influence in hybrid, in cyber, in, in financial flows, Russian oligarchs in London, uh, and all of that uh, kind of thing. And if there is diplomacy, it will be more the diplomacy of containment and avoiding war than the diplomacy of trying to form illusory partnerships, particularly with this regime, which clearly simply uh, doesn't show any interest uh, in those kind of partnerships. Uh, Tracy, if I could pick up on what uh, Jamie just said because he just answered your first question about will the Russians continue? Because we saw President Putin in 2007 come to the Munich Security Conference and lay his case out for what needs to be done in European security architecture to ensure Russian security going forward. Of course, he was completely rebuffed and embarrassed to some extent. Since 2007, he's been very surreptitious in his preparations and surreptitious in his actions. But in this part of the ongoing crisis since 2007, he's laid it all bare. He's, if you will, all in. He's put the draft treaties forward. He says quite explicitly what he wants. Uh, and again, he's been rebuffed. And so if this is the height of Russian power as he sees it, then it is the height of Ukrainian strength to, re to resist. And it is, uh, if you will, a, a crab boil for the West on a gradually increasing crisis to the point where now, as Jamie rightly points out, he's gotten everybody's attention. He's laid out the whole agenda. He's moved his forces, the, the majority of his forces. And remember to have 75% of your forces around Ukraine, when China's on your border, North Korea's on your border, South Korea is very close to your border. Uh, it's a significant demonstration that he's after the whole enchilada, if I could put it that way. We're running out of time. I could uh, carry on speaking with both of you um, for, for much longer. Um, but uh, in terms of what we can expect in the coming week, um, final words, Michael, uh, Jamie? Well, I'll just start. Uh, we should expect the unexpected. So we've all been talking, we've all been thinking, we've all been comparing notes and uh, synergizing our thoughts to get to where we are now. That's all to the good. But the Russians pay very close attention to what we say and what we do. Uh, they have a history of doing the unexpected. So I think despite the fact that it's pretty clear what he could do, there's going to be a few cards he's gonna play yet before he has to go all in with military force. So again, uh, continuing to arm the Ukrainians so that they have crew service weapons, individual service weapons that cause maximum Russian casualties is the best thing we could do militarily. And then really to prove the positive, to demonstrate that not only do we feel aligned with Ukraine, that we feel in support of Ukraine, that we're actually moving economically, financially, uh, with law enforcement, rule of law, 
to really get in and whatever we can access in Ukraine, we make as strong, as rich, and as healthy as possible. Jamie? Uh, Mike, uh, Mike has to run for his plane, so I'm certainly not going to hold him back. I, I, I would say I agree with all of that. I think the agenda has to be preserve the unity of the West. It's our greatest asset, and it's the one thing that Putin uh, is not expecting and is trying to undermine. Um, uh, we have to go ahead with harder sanctions, even if there are costs, reduce our vulnerabilities on Russia. So find alternative forms of gas quickly. Fortunately, we're coming into the summer and the winter hasn't been so bad. So hopefully uh, that can be uh, uh, possible. Uh, help Ukraine to at least uh, limit the amount of territory that the Russians can take uh, and think long term. Uh, we've got this giant state that has gone totally rogue in the international order, uh, in a way reminiscent of the 1930s and the challenge of the totalitarianisms. Uh, the instruments that we've tried to use to integrate that state, you know, through partnership and, and dialogue, negotiations, balancing of interests, hasn't worked so far. So we're going to have to think harder about how we deal with Russia. Russia has collapsed twice uh, in the 20th century. Uh, after go, we then went through a very brief and unfortunately for us uh, uh, frustrated democratic transitions six months only in 1917 uh, a couple of decades after 1990 when there was more hope so we have to hope that when the third democratic transition in Russia finally arrives this time round it will last a little bit longer. I'd like to say I completely agree with Jamie but we also need to think about the Russia after Putin because as Jamie pointed out during the First World War and after the end of the Cold War, we, the West, really dropped the ball on helping Russia incorporate itself more fully into the Western world. They were before World War I. They were in a good position. And then World War I and the rise of Bolshevism and the totalitarianism. We really dropped the ball uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union on accommodating uh, Russian needs and understanding them and then developing Russia into a country that could be a full partner with the West. So. We need to get through this just in the way Jamie laid out, but we also need to start thinking about what we're going to do next uh, should President Putin leave power and we have the opportunity to work with a, a new leadership. Thank you both uh, very much. Thank you to our guest speaker, Colonel Michael Ryan, to our senior fellows, Jamie Shea and Paul Taylor, and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode three of this Frankly Speaking special on the Russia-Ukraine crisis.